but it's good to be with you today. And uh, it's just great to see that God is always at work in your life and mine. And uh, when I come to share with you today, I don't come to pull out an old sermon. So you're right, Al, you won't hear one from years ago. Uh, but uh, it depends where God is working. And uh, as I work across uh, the church of this city, I'm one of the Christian leaders with Ian Shelton and others. As we work together, like, like yes, I was down in the Lockyer Valley taking a wedding for a Ugandan pastor who married a lass from the Lockyer Valley who's a top BMX rider in Queensland for women. How's that? So there's a fascinating one for you. And half the congregation, because she was born with little hearing, uh, half the congregation were deaf. So you go up and say, how are you? And they look at you and say, and when they sing even, you don't hear a lot of, but they're singing, but they're not singing. It's quite interesting. And it's the first time in my life I've had to run a service and have someone beside me, you know, doing all the hands. And I've been in many places where I've had to speak where there are interpreters into other languages, but never ever had someone there speaking with the hands for all the deaf people who are part of the congregation. So that was great just to be there and now today here to be with you. And this week I've got the privilege of being with YWAM. Who's familiar with YWAM? Anyone here? Yeah, there's a great group of them here at the moment from all over the world and uh, they're doing some uh, discipleship training over at Rangeville and I'll be sharing with them this week for uh, four or five hours this week. And uh, so I just thank God for the privilege of just being where God wants me to be and to see what God is saying. Now today, I've, uh, I will be referring to various uh, little references here. And, but the area that has really challenged me of late is guilt and shame. Anyone here ever felt guilt or shame? Anybody here? Got a couple of you. Right. Well, I hope that I'll have the whole lot of you in the bag by the time I'm finished. But it's very interesting when we start to talk about guilt and shame because sometimes some of us here may be sitting here saying, well, guilt and shame doesn't do much in my life. Wrong. And I'm going to, uh, I just want to share a short little few lines here about um, unhealthy guilt just to set a little bit of a direction for us this morning. Preoccupation with self is always a major component of unhealthy guilt and recrimination. It stirs our emotions, churning in self-destructive ways, closes us up in the mighty citadels of our self, leads to depression, to despair, and preempts the presence of a compassionate God. The language of unhealthy guilt is very harsh. It is demanding, abusing, criticizing, rejecting, accusing, blaming, condemning, reproaching, and scolding. It is one of impatience and chastisement. Christians are shocked and horrified because they have failed. Unhealthy guilt becomes bigger than life. The image of the childhood story, Chicken Little, comes to mind. Guilt becomes the experience in which people feel the sky is falling in upon them. Wow, that's a little description of guilt. Quite a, a descriptive way of placing it. 
One of the books that I've been reading uh, in the past weeks, so I still haven't quite finished it, called Tattoos on the Heart. It actually is a winner of the 2011 Penn Center United States Literary Award for Creative Nonfiction. So I won the top award for nonfiction in the United States in 2011. In this book here, we meet a man who writes this, is Gregory Boyle. He was a, a man who trained as a Catholic priest and then he went to Los Angeles to be a priest for his first appointment into the greatest gang capital of the world. There are 40 gangs in that area of Los Angeles in which his parish is in, the poorest parish in America. And those 40 gangs all have their areas, and if anyone from a, a rival gang goes into their territory, they're shot. He's buried two to 300 young people who have been murdered in gang warfare in Los Angeles in his 20 plus years uh, there as a priest. His name, as you can see, is Gregory Boyle. They call him G, G for short for Gregory. And uh, I want to share just, the whole book is just telling stories about the things that happened in that place of Los Angeles, of the, the gang capital of the world. And uh, as he tells these stories, he is often, even when he wrote the book, people say, well, tell me what your successes are. And he says, I love God, and my God is the one who rules this world. We don't write books on success. We write books on faithfulness. That's the key of life. Faithfulness, not writing books about success. I love that chapter. I'll call success in here because he says it's all about faithfulness. The story that I want to share with you is that of a young man called Pedro. Pedro, a greatly troubled child, like most of those who are in these crime areas, these uh, gang areas, he was filled with rage as a young man. He was resentful against everyone around about him. He submerged himself with heavy drinking and crack cocaine. He entered eventually into his own netherworld of substance abuse. Every time G, the young priest, would ever meet up with G, he would say to them, are you ready to be rehabilitated, Pedro? And Pedro always came with a sweetness. He never grew defensive. He would just say to the priest, G, oh, thanks, but I'm okay. But the priest, every time he saw Pedro, he would say, are you ready for me to take you to rehabilitation? And over and over and over and over again, Pedro would say, thank you, gee, no thanks. But one day, he, he agreed. And here was G driving Pedro to this rehabilitation center on the outside of Los Angeles. Thirty days into this rehabilitation time, Pedro was moving towards real healing in his life. Until on that 30th day, his brother Jovan, who had also had similar demons as Pedro, he had the same chemical dependence 
as Pedro. He put a gun to his head and shot himself. And so G had to ring up Pedro in the rehabilitation center and say, I hate to have to tell you this, but your brother shot himself and committed suicide last night. Well, you might have thought that would have been enough to blow Pedro right out of his rehabilitation. But it wasn't. And uh, so G said, look, I'll pick you up for the funeral on the condition that you make sure you go back to the rehabilitation center, otherwise I won't come and get you for the funeral. And he says, of course, G, I want to come back here because this is where I want to be. And uh, on the way to pick him up, G was sitting there driving to the rehabilitation center and he thought to himself, what do I say? What do I say to a young man whose brother has just shot himself because he had no hope? And he said he didn't know what to say and he just said, God, help me to know what to say because I've never been through the hell that these young boys have been through. I've never lived in the brokenness of these young men. And in one part of the book, G says, every young man and woman in these gangs of Los Angeles, every one of them lacked the love of a father. Every one of them. And they are driven by shame. Every one of them. And so he picks up Pedro. Pedro hops into the car and uh, here's G driving away wondering what he's going to say to him. But he didn't need to worry. Because G says, I've got to tell you something, G. Something that just happened to me. He said, I had a dream. I had a dream last night. And I've got to share it with you. And G you were in that dream with me. And he said, we were both in a large room, an empty room, just the two of us. There was no lights anywhere, no light creeping in any cracks in the walls. There were no windows in this room. There was no light of any form. It was sheer blackness. And somehow other... I seem to know that you were in the room with me, G. We didn't speak. Then suddenly, in the dark silence, G retrieved a flashlight out of his pocket. And he shone the flashlight onto the switch on the wall and sat there shining his flashlight onto the switch. I held the beam unwavering. Pedro realizing that he was the only one who could get up and turn the light switch on, he got up, thanking Pedro, for, thanking G first of all for having a flashlight with him. He makes his way to the switch, following the beam with some trepidation, and he arrives at the switch, takes a deep breath and flips the switch on the wall. And all of a sudden, the room is flooded with light. And Pedro is sobbing by this time as he tells the dream. And with a voice of astonishing discovery, he says, and the light is better than darkness. 
and the light is better than darkness. And as we just think about that, he weeps, unable to continue. And then he turns to G and he says, I guess my brother just never found the light switch. I guess my brother never found the light switch. Possessing a light and occasionally knowing where to aim it has to be enough for each one of us. You see, fortunately, none of us can save anybody. But we can find ourselves in this dark, windowless room, fumbling for grace and a flashlight. But it's a work of God that brings that amazing transformation. You hope and you wait for the light, this astonishing light, even though you don't even know how to deal with it. Oh, the darkness that's been in every one of us. And today, as I think of that story, I look out on every one of you here today, and I know that you have been in that dark room. There is not one human being on this earth today, and I don't care how young you are or how old you are, but every one of us begins our life in that dark room. And someone somewhere will shine that beam of light to that switch and we can get up and we can touch that switch and the light comes on and God enters our world and we become the people that we were created to be. I loved uh, a little cartoon I saw just a couple of days ago when I went to Rangeville to pick up some material. And in it, this guy's hair was all over the place as if he's been tearing his hair out. And he says, you know, God created us all with uh, many things for us personally to accomplish. And uh, goes on to say, and I'm so far behind doing all the things God wants me to do, I'm going to live to a ripe old age. And you know, for most of us, there is so much God has given each of you individually the privilege of doing in this world. You don't know how vast it is, but every one of you individually, God has a deep purpose for you. But first of all, I want to talk about this darkness that every one of us has, by the grace of God, have to withdraw from into the light. I hear the words of Jeremiah 17 9 in Scripture, and I'm going to come with you a bit like a machine gun today, you're just going to have to write it down, flick your Bibles as quick as you can, and uh, I need you to journey with me quickly. I apologize for the rapid way in which we'll progress at this point. But in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, A heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I want to tell you now that the heart of every human being born in this world is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. Isaiah 64, 6, let me read this passage to you. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for, you've been hidden, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. And yet, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. 
We are all the work of your hand. That's Isaiah 64, 6 to 8. And when I read that recently in my own quiet time with my Heavenly Father, I began to have tears run down my face because I hear the words, no one calls on your name. That's a pretty wild statement. No one calls on your name. You know, it's a sad reality of our sinful heart that nobody calls on his name. Nobody. And then you come to the New Testament, to Romans 3. Let me read to you verse 10, 11, and 12. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And as I think about that, I just pray that you can just grab hold of the picture with me of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 is the best picture for us to understand what those passages are all about. Adam and Eve, the moment they became guilty of sin, they also felt great shame. They felt their nakedness and they hid. What a picture. You know, God walks into the garden and says, where are you, Adam? And they were both hiding, not only with a fig leaf upon them, but behind the bushes to hide from the God they used to walk with daily in the garden. The distance from God became immediate. It's a picture of shame that separates. It speaks of being separated from the presence of a holy God. Guilt and shame. Now, I want you to remember here, if I were to ask you, what is guilt? Well, guilt is about what you've done. Right? Guilt is what you've done. Shame is who you are. You got the difference? Guilt is what you've done. Shame is who you are. Please hold on to those two truths. Guilt is about what you've done. Shame is about who you are. And I just want to come back to where I began this morning. Are you aware of how guilt and shame separates us from our relationship with God and separates our relationship with each other and separates the real richness of knowing who we are ourselves? Guilt and shame has a powerfully destructive force within us. And the sad reality is that as I move around after 38 years in full-time ministry and now I've been retired for four years, I find that most Christians are walking around with guilt and shame dictating still in their life. That's why I have such a burden in preparing this message. I know it won't just be for this morning. It will go on, and by the grace of God, I'll keep developing it. Shame has a less technical word. I wonder if anyone can tell me the word that we use for shame today. We don't use the word shame. It's sort of not in vogue at the moment. Guess what we call it? We call it self-esteem. Ever heard anyone use that word this today? Everything that you young people read, it's all about self-esteem. That is a word shame. Let me just talk about it just for a moment. This less technical word self-esteem, low self-esteem with its feelings of worthlessness, 
This shame, this low self-esteem, are both rooted in the sin right back in Adam. That's where the root of it comes from. Shame still retains the idea that we are ashamed before God as well as before people. We're ashamed of our own life. Deep down for the things that we have done in the years gone by. I know of things in my own life of which I could see how shame dictated to me for many years. Where guilt drove me in so many different ways. But you see, in our world today, we don't use the word shame because the word shame brings God into the picture. So what do we use today? We use the word self-esteem. You just think about how the world presents self-esteem. It's seen as strictly a problem between ourselves and other people or a problem just within our souls. And it never, ever brings God into it. That's why they shifted the words. We changed the word from shame to self-esteem, low self-esteem. You see, low self-esteem is a pop version of a biblical shame, of nakedness. It's a secularized shame, as we call it today. And all the popular books that you and I read today try to inflate our self-esteem, trying somehow or other to deal with the real problem within us. I want you to think carefully about this now because I believe this is a God-given insight that we need to grab hold of. The problem is, is that we are not okay. You know, all these books being written about our low self-esteem, all these books being written because in every one of us is guilt and shame dictating in our lives. And the world is saying, look, this is how you deal with low self-esteem. And the world, without admitting to it, is acknowledging that in actual fact there's a deeper problem in every human life. We truly are deficient. You heard that when I read from Isaiah and when I read from Romans earlier. You know, we are behind walls. These walls isolate people from each other and isolate people from God. They protect us from the gaze of other people. I want you to realize how guilt and shame operate in practical ways in this world. We build walls with thousands of different ways. We build walls by trying to get more money by trying to become famous, by becoming a great sports person, by accomplishments, by jobs, by busyness. Shame is at the root of all of our addictions. You can get hold of this book here that talks about all the gangs in the Los, Los Angeles, but you've got to realize it's not just the people who take cocaine and, and drink alcohol to excess. But every human person in this room here today, I believe you have addictions of some kind. That addiction will vary amongst all of us. And I want you to realize that the addictions that come into your life and mine are addictions that come because of guilt and shame operating in our lives. Shame is rooted in our inherent, inherent preference to trust false gods rather than depend on God for each and every moment of our existence. If your heavenly dad was all-consuming 
and he was central to your life, burning deep within every one of us, then shame and guilt would not be there. But unfortunately, shame and guilt drive themselves on in our lives in deep ways. I want to show you a paradox for a moment. The paradox of self-esteem, and listen to it carefully, low self-esteem normally means that I think too highly of myself. You realize that? Low self-esteem, the paradox of low self-esteem is because I think I'm the bee's knees. I am the best thing since sliced bread. I am the best thing that ever existed in this world. And there was a book that actually Peter had given me that I read called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And you see, in your life and mine, when you center your life on yourself as being the greatest gift to the world, you've just blown yourself apart. You are not the center of the world. God is a center. That doesn't diminish any one of us, if you take that in its true sense, but it makes you who you're meant to be. When God, when people are big and God is small, overcoming peer pressure, codependence, and the fear of man, that book says in the subtitle. You see, this is a dark, quieter side of pride. We wear masks. If the gaze of people awakens fear in us, how much more do you think the gaze of God upon your life will bring fear upon people? And I want to say to you today, and you and I know it in our world, if you have a less than a biblical view of sin, it affects you. It may be tempting to conclude that the shame can be remedied by someone affirming you. I want to say that again. If you diminish sin, you diminish the power of the transforming grace of God. And what I want to do is just share just something with you. There's a man here whose book I've been reading lately called The Misunderstood God, The Lies Religion Tells Us About God, da David Hufford. And in one of his sermons on shame, David Hufford said this, he married the most beautiful woman in the world, he said. She has been my wife for quite a few years now. And he said, for the first 10 years of our married life, I kept affirming her how beautiful she was, how she was unique and special, and would tell her that I thank God that she was his wife and that she was the most precious woman in the world. But no matter what he, how he affirmed her, she couldn't get beyond the shallowness and fearfulness that I am an ugly, unattractive, and unlovable person. Isn't that interesting? David Hufford shares that. Until one day, his wife encountered the amazing love of God the Father in a fresh way that overcame all the shame and guilt that was riding through her life. What I'm trying to say to you today is that when the work of God takes place in you, it's awesome stuff. See, most of us, we look at the flesh and say, this is me. They don't look at what Christ has done. They don't deal with it. And it took a revelation of God in David Hufford's wife's life to all of a sudden she became like a, a whole new person. No longer let guilt, no longer let shame, 
ever dictate into her life. I want to ask you this morning, in our amazing, powerful transformation that David Hufford talks about, when his wife came to really grasp and to rest by faith in the amazing work of God the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit, I wonder, is that central for your life? Because this is where I want to take you now for this last part of our message. You see, who are you? Who are you? Who are you in the Father's eyes? Do you know who you are? I want to tell you, you are chosen. The Word of God says, every one of you today who are in Christ have been chosen. You are adopted as a child of God. You are a brother and sister to Jesus Christ. And you have a Heavenly Father who loves you with an unconditional eternal love. Imagine for a moment, if you want to look back even on your own life, imagine for a moment your worst moment of guilt and shame you've ever experienced in your life. And I want to tell you, that very worst moment that you can even go back upon and think about is a moment where God is saying to you, while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. That's what Romans 5, 8 says. No matter whatever it is in your life or mine, no matter whatever is the shame and the guilt of your life and mine, that very worst that you can think of, that was that very moment that he so loved you that he died for you. And the very worst. He died for us. And I want you to realize that when Christ died on the cross, I want to emphasize something to you this morning, that the cross is a cure, not a punishment. The cross is a, the cure, not a punishment. It's a language of reconciliation. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore your shame and he bore your guilt on Calvary. And I want you to think about it for a moment. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us a message of reconciliation. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. I want you to see that on that cross at Calvary, all your guilt, all your shame, Jesus bore for you on Calvary's cross. And so the most beautiful thing for us as Christians, we hear the words of Jesus, I have come to set you free, and you will be free indeed. This is awesome stuff. Like I mean... I've just been reading a little bit about the latest uh, propaganda that the government's trying to bring into our schools at the moment from creation research. And in that, uh, there's a historian, David Christian, who's uh, done research in uh, Macquarie University of Sydney, and he's presented this paper that now he's going to take the 13.7 billion years that this world existed in, condense it into one year of teaching to high school students and they're already trialing this program in schools and you know the why the reason he developed this program he says because Christians have got all the drama they've got all the reality of all the things that happen we've got to make up the story that can match these Christians and Bill Gates is going to be finance it and he's behind it 
And if that's successful, it's going to go into all the schools of this country. And there's two schools, one in Sydney and one in Melbourne High School, that experience it. The world is looking at what we Christians have and see how awesome it is. Because we have it right from the beginning of time where Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden to how guilt and shame have infiltrated our world. And here we have the story so beautifully done. And so sin and shame keeps us from relationship. And John, Jesus tells us in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He could have called a legion of angels, the scripture says, but because of the guilt and shame that would tear your life apart all through your years, he went to the cross at Calvary and died for you and for me. Psalm 15, 1 says, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? Only Christ can enter into the holy of holies. Only Jesus himself can have the clean hands and he went to the cross on your behalf and you in Christ today can enter into the presence, as Hebrews says, you can enter into his presence without fear or trembling because you enter the presence of a God who loves you and forgives all the guilt and all the shame of your life. So be careful as we wrap it up. Be careful of defining ourselves by the flesh. You are God's child. You are loved by him. Of course we've all failed. Of course, as one John says, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans says that. And one John says that, oh, that we have to realize in one John that we all sin. That's true. We do make mistakes. But like the Red Sea, when the Israelites went across the Red Sea, it was just so they went down into that Red Sea and up the other side and they became a new people with new hope, with a God to lead them. You and I have got to see that dramatic realization that our guilt and shame has been dealt with once for all by Christ. I want to read just a couple of scripture verses to you because I think they have such profound truths for us today. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. Let me just read that one to you first of all. Come with me if you can. If not, just listen carefully. 1 Corinthians 10, 2. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanies them, and that rock was Christ. How beautiful. We drink from him. Look at Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. Let me read these few verses to you. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 2 Corinthians 5 is an amazing little passage. And in that, it speaks just so many words of life to you and I. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 and 18, you listen to these. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and gave us a ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation, and therefore we are Christ's ambassadors. When you and I have our guilt and sin dealt with, we find ourselves then being able to say, the old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us. Christ made the old gone. He made the new real. Psalm 25, 2. Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Everything in the world is based on shame. I don't know whether you realize it. Pity parties. Boasting is the other side of shame. Gossip, whenever we gossip, is part of shame because it's a competitive righteousness within us. Boasting is always competitive. Gossip is very much part of even many churches that we enter into. Being authentic and open, is that you and me? Real, honest about our sin? Knowing that our shame and guilt has been dealt with? Or is it gossip? Religion is always competitive. Rebellion is a shame avoidance system. Religion is a shame management system. Shame on you, we hear people say. And I never forget very quickly how this guy, when he, was, when he died, he went to heaven. And Peter said to him, so are you able to come into heaven? He says, yes. He says, uh, I think I have enough points to get into heaven. And uh, Peter, St. Peter said, well, what have you done on earth? And this man said, well, I uh, went out and I was feeding the poor for 10 years, every week of my life. There was a special canteen that I went to every week. And St. Peter said, yep, right. You've got to get 100 points. That'll be one. He said, well, I was, a, I was a minister for 25 years. I ministered to people for 25 years. And Peter said, hmm, that sounds all right. That's two. He said, what do you mean two points? He said, that's all. And next minute, this businessman he knew in town who had died just came and went straight into heaven. And, and this man said, that's not fair. How come he goes into heaven? And I'm still here trying to get my points. And St. Peter said, he's not playing the game you're playing. He's not playing that game. And I want to know, are you playing that game? Are you playing the game about whether you've done enough, whether you're good enough, whether you are worthy to go into heaven? Because the moment you accept who Christ is and you become a new creation, it is the goodness of God, not the goodness of me, that takes you into his presence. It's the goodness of God that brings me to an answer to my shame and my guilt in my life. Wow, that's what it's all about. And let me leave you with these scriptures, Jeremiah 24, 7. I'll give them a new heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They'll return to me with all their heart. When you're not a Christian, you live in the Jeremiah 17. Your heart's deceitful and desperately wicked. But when you become a Christian, you get a new heart because your heart is no longer rebellious. Your heart is now able to respond to God. It doesn't mean you've got perfection, 
But it does say that my heart, I know that when I sin, I am soon grieved and repentance is a daily part of my living because I know I have forgiveness in Christ. How beautiful it is. Jeremiah 32, 19, I'll give them singleness of heart. Ezekiel 36, 26, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, the pure in heart, they will see God. Luke 8, 15, but the seed on good and... But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. Dear ones, I want you to realize that the heart is a source of our faith, our hope, and the course of our love. Emotions are just the voice of the heart. Emotions is not the heart any more than saying love is a feeling. It's the thoughts and intents of the heart that shapes a person's life. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that Christ, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And with your heart you believe and are justified. Charles Ryrie said the heart is considered the very center and the core of your life. Oswald Chambers said the heart is best understood by simply saying me. Or, and I haven't got time to develop it with you, but in this book here, called Who Switched Off My Brain, I asked a lady recently, have you read this book? She says, I wrote it. Because I switched off my brain a long time ago. But Dr. Leith is a heart surgeon. And listen to what she says about your heart and mine. He says, your heart is not just a pump. It's actually like another brain. The heart has its own independent nervous system which is a complex system referred to as a brain in the heart. And the brain in your heart is a checking station for all the emotions generated by the flow of chemicals created by thoughts. It regulates many of our brain function and stimulates behavior. The heart is in constant communication with your brain and the rest of your body, checking the accuracy and the integrity of your thoughts and your life. Your heart pops your heart pops in words of advice to your brain. And Proverbs 23, say, 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so he is, says Proverbs 23, 7. And so, it's an amazing thing to get hold of this book. She does it as try, tries to get it down to day-to-day -day language. But what she does is try to show you that you have another brain operating called the heart. It's your heart that then corrects. The Word of God says, renew your mind. How are you going to renew your mind? Through the heart. The heart corrects the wrong emotions, the wrong feelings, and it deals with you. And so we've got to be, right through our Christian life, allowing the Word of God to work through our hearts and correct our thinking patterns until we live with the true freedom that Christ has given us. Dear ones, Isaiah 54 says, Do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel 
is your Redeemer. So, dear ones, today, I want you to realize that Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation. No matter what you've done in this world, no matter what guilt you've got hidden, tucked away behind you, that even you unconsciously are not aware of so often, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk every day with the Spirit of the Lord, stirring up the truth through the heart, correcting the mind, and teaching the mind the truths that it needs to know. How powerful, how wonderful. And I want to remind you, just like Isaiah told us, Isaiah 54, 4, that you do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated, you will forget the shame of your youth. You think back on your life, to your young years, to the foolish things you do, whatever it is, there is no more shame, no more shame for you, no more guilt for you, in all the failures of your life, in what you have done, that guilt is dealt with, that shame of who you are has been removed, and you are his child, so rich and precious. Dear ones today, I want to ask you, are you feeling clean and beautiful? Well, Mother Teresa had a bunch of people with leprosy in front of her, all with leprous hands and feet. And when she was there with a group of other overseas visitors, she just said to these lepers, we just want to say to you today, you are the most precious people that we could ever be with. And we thank you for your contribution to our lives. She went to speak on, when out of the crowd, one of the worst lepers, most deformed of all, that leper said, say it again, Mother Teresa. Say it again. Because when you said that, something beautiful happened in my spirit. Mother Teresa had spoken hope into the lepers' lives. Today the gospel comes. And it's saying to every one of you in this room, you're beautiful, you're special, you're contributing to people's lives around about you, how precious you are. There is no shame and no guilt that Jesus has not dealt with. May God help you. And may you realize that you do have a new heart. And that new heart no longer is rebellious to the things of God. And therefore, your pride and your shame have been dealt with forever. God bless you. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we just want to thank you now for the amazing work of grace that you've done in our lives. This is awesome. No wonder people down in Macquarie University are trying to come up with the story of this world that deals with how creation worked and try to take the 13.7 billion years and put it into a one-year course for high school students because they say we can't let the creationists have all the great stuff. What a testimony. They will never want to say that too often in public, but it was in the Australian just a few weeks ago. And so, Father, we sit here today as men and women in Christ, and we have so much to be proud of, so much to sit here in awe and wonder. So much to be filled with the beauty of all that Christ did for us on Calvary. All our shame and guilt has been dealt with. And we thank you. And we praise you for that. And just like that leper, they cried out, Say it again, Mother Teresa, for that did something to my heart. 
And you are saying to us this morning, Father, you have told us that you love us with an everlasting love, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. And we thank you and we praise you and commit each other now to you in your wonderful name. Amen.